You're listening to audio from the Portland Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to our ministry, please visit www.portlandchurch.org. Today, uh, to lead us through communion is uh, Mariah Bogers here. Mariah, how are you doing? Good. I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? Happy Father's Day. Thank you very, very much. It's good to see you and appreciate you being here. Tell us your thoughts about communion today. Yeah. um, Thank you for having me, Steve and Lisa. It's such a wonderful morning that we get to honor our fathers, um, our earthly fathers and our heavenly father as well. I wanted to take a look at the prodigal son today in Luke 15. We won't be reading all of it, um, but I'll give a little bit of background for those who aren't familiar with the story. So this is a story that Jesus is telling about a father and his two sons. The son, the prodigal son or the lost son, essentially asked for his inheritance from his living father, um, his portion of his inheritance. He then took that inheritance, went off to a far land, essentially squandered all of it, um, became hungry and poor, and was working as a servant, was longing for um, the food that the livestock was eating. So went from a place of great wealth to a very low class position um, where he was really in need. I wanted to pick it up in verse 17, and we'll read a little talk, read a little bit and talk. So verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, this is the son, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. I want to take a pause right there. I love that last part right there, talking about how the father saw his son when he was a long way off. The son probably hadn't even reached his destination of his father's house yet, right? Like the father saw him he ran. A lot of scholars assume that the father actually ran outside of city limits to reach his son. With his son doing this act of taking his inheritance and then blowing it and trying to return back, that was very shameful to do. And it's very likely that the father ran to greet the son before the community had a chance to like exile him from the group. So he ran to protect his son from others who wanted to do him harm. I also want to take note of the fact that he ran to his son. I think that seems like very common knowledge. Like, of course, you would run to your son. You know, you love your son and he's been gone for a long time. But culturally at this time, it was very dishonorable for a man to run. In order to do so, he would have to hike up his tunic and his bare legs would be exposed And that was very humiliating and shameful for the father to do, but he did it for his son. I want to keep reading in verse 21. It says, the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It's so inspiring to me to see the father not only provide the basic needs that his son had, but he went above and beyond. He was hungry. Not only did he give him the meal, but he provided a feast, the best feast with the best livestock. He was poor and needed clothes to wear, and he gave him the best wardrobe. The son was only coming to work as a hired man, but instead he was honored as a son. He was in need, and the father lowered himself. He did everything in his power to go above and beyond to meet his son's need. Let's continue in verse 25. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property and with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because the brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I think spiritually when we look at this passage, a lot of us resonate with the lost son, the son who has blown everything time and time again talking about our sinful nature and just wanting our needs to be met by God and be welcomed with open arms. You know, we've messed up a thousand times and coming back to open arms and having our needs met more than what we were expecting can be a wonderful thing. I think on a day like today and Father's Day, some of us have a relationship with our father that we cherish and we honor and we see similar characteristics in this story in our own father's. But I know that's not the case for all of us. And I think I want to be sensitive about that today and knowing that even if your relationship with your earthly father might not be the best, that your heavenly father is like this. Your heavenly father does provide in this way. And that's something to rejoice today, even if you think, even if it's hard to rejoice over your earthly father, we do have a heavenly father who we can rejoice and praise today. I also want to take a moment to look at the older brother. I think it's very easy to look at the young son to see the wonderful homecoming and kind of forget all about the older son and what his, what his deal was. But I think it's really important making an analogy to what's currently going on with the Black Lives Matter movement and the difference between the older brother and the younger brother. It says the older brother was angry and refused to go in. He complained, how come I never got a big party? How come he gets all of these things and I never got that type of attention? And it's clear at the end of the story, the father says, your needs were always met. You were always here with me. He, your younger brother was in need, so we need to go and help him. I think spiritually, it can be easy to see that we're the lost son. But I think in terms of what's going on socially right now in America, I think it's important to ask which son we are. I have tendencies of both at different times. 
One son was in need and the other one was not and was complaining. From the father's perspective, it was clear that he cared for both of his sons. But when asking which son needs my help right now, it was very clear which son was in need. He ran to provide and to care and to love for that son and protect him from the community that was trying to get him out of the community and to expel him from the group. He ran to protect and to change the narrative. And instead of having a ceremony to expel his son from the community, he went and had a party instead. He flipped it on its head. As we think of Father's Day today, being reminded of our earthly father, who is very similar to his father in this story, and how Jesus died on the cross and also provided for our needs, I think it's important for us to remember for us ourselves to run to those in need as well, because our needs were first taken care of by God, and it's our job and our duty to do the same for other people who are in need. Um, I can't thank you enough for being willing to just be here and talk. Thank you. A few couple of weeks prior, I had watched the video of Ahmaud Arbery's murder. You know, it echoed from Trayvon Martin to Eric Garner to Michael Brown, et cetera, et cetera. And even people before that, it was just a, I think a, uh, there was maybe I felt equal parts anger and sadness, given the discussions that I've had at different times through the years with different people, different members and uh, people that weren't members. There's a sense of kind of giving up, like we've talked about this before. We've, we've done church-wide prayers before. We have sort of pled our case before. And it's never really moved the needle in terms of the broader community being outraged by it. But I think seeing the, the sadism personified evil of George Floyd's murder, and the, I think the thing that angered me probably the, well, one of the things was the nonchalance, inhumanity, cavalier, such an uh, such arrogant nature of those that killed him, the, uh, the, the policemen. It was just a picture of this institutional systemic sense of superiority. And it was so evil that I just, you know, how can this be going on? How, how, how can we look away from this and how can this be normal? How can this have been normalized? This level of barbarism, how can that be normal in 2020? And uh, so, yeah, I just, you know, and I'm not someone that, like I said, that is typically, you know, like I would not, I don't think I'd be characterized as quote unquote, an angry person. But what I will say is that you can carry anger, uh, you know, that, uh, that James Baldwin quote, that uh, to be a Negro in America and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage nearly all the time, because you think about the years and years of trauma that is suppressed. So I think just getting more in touch with it. And yeah, I'm still, I mean, I haven't fully landed. And so I feel very, very angry. It's sort of, um, at one, on one hand, I am thrilled that this has, there's been an awakening, uh, you know, nationally and internationally in our churches like we've never seen before. And, you know, we've had protests. We've had so many of our members just being more aware than ever before. And I'm talking in three weeks more than in the previous maybe 20, 30 years of honest conversations. So I don't at all want to 
you know, miss the moment or not be grateful. But I would say more than that is the anger that it's gone on for this long and that the myth has been perpetuated. And uh, and also getting more and more in touch, forcing myself to watch 13th, to listen to 1619, going to the African-American Museum in D.C., knowing what's there and knowing that I'm not going to walk away feeling happy. I'm going to walk away feeling worse, but needing to go into it. It's interesting. My uh, two daughters, uh, one is 29, the other one is 24. Seeing them process this has really been heartbreaking, but also very inspiring because they just can't really wrap their, their minds around why are we treated this way? Uh, watching them process what it means to, to be Black to them even though they've grown up in Burbank, California, they've not faced overt racism and, and lot not, I mean, it's in the atmosphere, but I'm not saying even covert really, but realizing that because of the color of their skin, they are less valuable than some in our society. Just watching them grapple with it, something that kind of those of us that are older have taken for granted, it is what it is, them not being able to, abide it and then uh, my oldest daughter the couple of Fridays ago when what would have been Brianna Taylor's 27th birthday uh just weeping thinking that this woman wasn't safe in her own home and that could easily be either one of them were they not born to the same parents in the same situation I just think it's important to accept that there is there is generational anger that everybody of color feels. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've had an opportunity to hear from uh, brothers and sisters, uh, black brothers and sisters who have been disciples for uh, some going on five decades now, men and women who've been in the ministry for three and four decades. These, these aren't kids yeah. and these aren't quitters. Uh, these are brothers and sisters who've been in our fellowship for uh, all of these years faithful uh, not just not just faithful to the Lord. Let me throw it out there. Not just faithful to the Lord, but bearing with a lot of ignorance from people like me who don't really understand. Uh, there's some new phrases in our vocabulary, like microaggression, which, you know, I, I don't think there's anyone that can look at atrocities in the world and, and not be appalled. Uh, but very often I uh, say, well, that's the world and, and what do you expect? And Jesus said, you know, you're, you're going to have trouble, you know, in the world, but I've overcome the world. And so we say, but in the church, it's different. I think us talking is is, is going to help a lot of people understand why it's not been different in the church for a lot of black brothers and sisters. Most of us have just gotten used to that. And I guess felt as though this is the most loving, relationally connected, devoted community any of us have ever known. And obviously our lives have been radically transformed. And so it's our, it's our spiritual family. Uh, and there are certain people you connect better with than others, regardless of race. And so I think it's just been understanding, hey, well, brother or sister, so-and-so won't get it like someone else will, but also not wanting to put on our white brothers and sisters a burden that maybe they shouldn't have. In other words, we've all grown up in this system, 
many of us, it's invisible. And if, if we haven't had a microaggression, if we had, if we hadn't seen the video of George Floyd, we probably would be in the same place, which is, you know, hey, things have gotten better. Slavery was bad. And some people, even in our fellowship to this day, don't think that institutional racism or systemic racism, racism exists. So it's sort of accepting the reality that some of what is our national issue is in the church. It's just a, a an unawareness of a, a blindness. And, you know, it's a burden you bear. And then, of course, when you talk with people like you, like in my church, there are people I can talk to that get what it feels like to to be me much more than others. And so uh, the term, you probably have heard the term code switching, that is a part of just normal life as a as an African-American, but also in the church where we all have multi-ethnic friends, which is a great compliment to our fellowship. But what I realized is that even though there, there are people that are in our weddings, people that we raise our kids with, do holidays with, white, black, and I mean, we are as loving as any group can be, literally take a bullet for each other. Once we go away from there, we live in separate worlds where people of other ethnicities, they don't have to worry about their kid being pulled over or their kid not wearing a hoodie or uh, the police being less than respectful to them. It's not even a thought where in our community, it's a norm. So in some ways we don't even think about it, it's just the way it is. So that, I think I've been awakened to how different the worlds we live in are as close as we are in the body of Christ. I think we've got a lot of brothers and sisters who are on the fence right now and trying to decide, are we talking about this too much? I think there's still people that struggle with uh, uh, saying Black Lives Matter and under, understanding that. I think there's, uh, and there's so much stuff in the media that I think, you know, that you have, you have to dismiss. We, we've got to talk about this. And, and when you hear somebody saying, can we just get back and talk about Jesus? Uh, we've talked about these things, you know, for three weeks now. This is the third Sunday since, since uh, George uh, Floyd was murdered. And of course, there's been so many things that have happened over these last three weeks, even since then. How do you feel? If I can put it in a field, just brother to brother as, as part of my body, how do you feel when I say, Kevin, can we get back to talking about Jesus? How does that make you feel when you say that? One brother I know who, who's white uh, has been having breakfast with an Asian brother for eight years every Saturday, and this is the first time they've ever talked about race in the past couple of weeks. So those aha moments are going on. And so this brother realizes this, this African-American, and he's like, when I come to church, I do not want to hear sanitized platitudes about the greatest commandment and the great commission in theory that doesn't relate to what I'm dealing with every day in my life. I want to come to church and hear someone talk about what it's like to be all of us day to day with loving your enemies, forgiving, dealing with social justice issues. That's what I want when I come to church. And so then the next conversation was with another uh, brother who was white, and his sentiment was, I do not want politics. I don't want social issues. When I come to church, I want a sanctuary. I want time to connect with God. I want to worship in song. I want to learn about Jesus, and I want to get away from the pollution of the world. I don't want 
the pollution of the world to be brought into the church. And so these are two, and, and the idea that we've talked about this long enough, we need to move on and get back to Jesus. And so you've got these, these disparate feelings and our, our enemy's desire always is to divide, whether it's this issue, whatever it is, issue it is, his end game is always to divide. And that is what he is trying to do, even as there is unity and awakening that's happening. So what I was drawn to is, and here's my conviction, which and this is what I've, I've mentioned to our people. I'll tell you for me, for Kevin, there is no issue going on right now that challenges me to be more like Jesus than dealing with this. I can do generic, hey, love your neighbor, uh, be nice to your neighbors, serve the poor. I mean, I can do that. What's harder for me to do is love someone who doesn't believe that institutional racism exists and says that it's a media creation and says that it's perpetuated victimization and who who dismisses it. I mean, we've got people like that in our churches right now. Uh, actually, there was a conversation a few weeks ago with one brother who said he doesn't believe it exists. You know, it's sort of the bad apple theory uh, that there are few people, but but it, it doesn't exist. And so it challenges me to love that person, to be kind, to listen to them, to validate them, to to not distance myself or just say, okay, here's someone that's never going to get it. And so I'm going to withdraw my love from him and just go do my thing with this part of the church. So for me, for Kevin, this issue really does, if I say I want to be like Jesus, somebody show me an issue currently going on that challenges me more in that area than this. Then I think for the uh, white brothers and sisters, we've got so many of our members that are like, wow, I, I never knew. And I can say I love you sort of like um, uh, James talked about, if you have faith without deeds, you know, you say you love your brother, but you say, hey, keep warm and well-fed and, and James too, go do your thing, but you don't do anything for their physical needs. What good is that? And I think it exposes the shallow love that we exhibit and have compared to what we really could have. And if I really love someone, then I'm going to sit in their pain and help them just like I would want someone to do if the shoe were on the other foot. A uh, passage comes to mind in Luke chapter four. Um, it is Jesus' first sermon after he's baptized and the spirit descends as a dove earlier on. He is, uh, God speaks to him, which would have been so remarkable to hear. This is my son whom I love with him, I'm well pleased. And so he's anointed to begin his ministry, goes in the desert 40 days and nights, takes Satan's best effort, uh, calls on the word, and uh, emerges victorious, comes into the synagogue, opens up to Isaiah, you know, 58, 61, and gives his first message. And you think about how remarkable it would have been to hear Jesus' first sermon. And he says in Luke 4, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so when you look at the text of Jesus' first message, he says that I have been anointed and chosen to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim to speak freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, 
and to set the oppressed free. Those that are oppressed, and obviously he's talking about the general idea of spiritual oppression, oppression due to sin, oppression due to uh, a lack of general spirituality in the Israelite community, and to bring reconciliation to the world. We all know that's what Jesus was about. But I would say, this is not, hey, let's get off of this so we can get back to being like Jesus. This is, let's lean into this so that we can actually be who we say we want to be. And if you look at Jesus' ministry, think about it. The Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, the hated race of Samaritans that uh, Jews wouldn't talk to, wouldn't interact with. He's like, I'm here with you. I'm treating you as a human being and I value you. And you are just as beloved by God as anybody else. And so, you know, he's ministering to her. The woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. He doesn't condemn her. He enters into her pain. He, he treats her with the humanity and dignity and image of God that she has, calls her to leave her life of sin, but is leaning into her life, her social life. Jesus touches the leper. I'm willing. Other people don't want to touch you because you're not clean. I, I'm willing. I want you to be clean. John chapter 11, Jesus with Mary and Martha. He enters into the pain and humanity of these women who are heartbroken because their brother died. And he weeps. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it. I'm going to raise him. It's all good. Focus on salvation. He enters into their pain. Think about uh, Matthew 9, where Jesus see the, sees the crowds. He's not annoyed by them. They got all kinds of sin. They're not Jesus followers. They're just random people. Every level on the continuum of morality. But he sees that they're har uh, harassing helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so is he filled with annoyance? Is he filled with impatience? Is he filled with uh, distraction? Is he miffed? No, he's filled with compassion. He doesn't have minimal compassion. He is filled with compassion. And he pray, He says, let's pray to send more workers into the harvest field. Why? Because these people are harassed like sheep without a shepherd. The experts, the, the most spiritual people among us, the people that know the scriptures the best, that have the most personal piety. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Dude says, the teacher says, wanting to justify himself, who's my neighbor, wanting to compartmentalize who his neighbor is. And I do think that we, we can do the same thing. We want to justify who is my neighbor. And we can limit neighbors to people that don't make me uncomfortable or that I, don't, that I agree with politically or socially and that don't make me uncomfortable. And so Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan, and you know the Levite and the priest are busy doing spiritual things, and they walk on the other side, and this, quote-unquote, this person that's not a man of God, that's from Samaria, that is not part of the chosen people of God, is better at being a human being than those that say they're, they have devoted their lives to following God. And I believe... That in starting and being a Jesus follower, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be more godly. That's great, but we can start it. Let's let's try being decent human beings as as first base. Seeing that that is a route to getting toward 
being more like Jesus because Jesus was interested in healing, not that this is spiritual, but Jesus was interested in healing the humanity, the physical, the emotional, the mental, the social, as well as the spiritual. And he didn't discriminate. And so the Good Samaritan takes time, spends money, is willing to be inconvenienced. Why? To meet the man simply because the dude was in need. And then Jesus says, priest, Levite, super spiritual dude, go and do likewise. And I think that's what God is calling us to do as a church. I mean, the world's watching us. What are you guys going to do? Are you going to hide behind, well, we're apolitical, we're, we're asocial justice, we're all about Jesus? Uh, that's a defense mechanism. And I'm not saying it's been malicious, but I'm just saying I think we've missed the boat as a fellowship and as churches. So I believe that this is an opportunity for us to become more like Jesus. And in fact, all these people that may or may not be Jesus followers, most of them aren't, but they're human beings with a soul and a heart and a conscience in the image of God. And they know enough to see that police and other citizens killing black unarmed people is evil. They know enough. Maybe they don't know, you know, uh, John 3.16, but they know enough to know that's wrong. And they're out in the streets by the millions. They are the modern day Samaritans. And perhaps some of us are the modern day priests and Levites that are walking by on the other side en route to the temple because we have compartmentalized our spirituality. People that know me, I've been in the church so long. I don't, I doubt that there's anybody that can, could accuse me of weaponizing my race, you know, being the angry black guy that is always, hey, you need to pay attention. That, that's not been the case. And so this is the issue right now that God has used to wake, uh, uh, awaken all of us. We have tolerated. We have not been uh, appalled by this clear evil in our society. And sure, some of us have been blind to it, but we've also tolerated it. And you've heard the term, I'm not a racist. I, that's great. But am I racially indifferent? Is, is racism a deal breaker for me? And the answer for many Christians is no, it's not. If a church, if a politician, if a social leader does other things I like or promotes other causes that I'm down with, and they happen to be a little racist, I don't prefer it, but it's not repugnant to me. It's, it's not a deal breaker. And how is that like Jesus? And didn't wasn't, you know, uh, there's a book that uh, Her Howard Thurman wrote. Uh, he was a mentor of Martin Luther King, and he wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. And Jesus laser focused on serving and lifting up and treating with dignity those who had been overlooked, oppressed, disinherited, and dismissed. That was his target audience. And to be like Jesus, to me, we would do well to do the same. So that's, you know, basically is my sentiment. So that's what I would say uh, to that person. There's a, one other passage that we'll look at in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul tells the church in Colossae, So then, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, 
rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with, with thankfulness. So Paul's talking to these Christians and he says, basically, just as you've received him, continue to be to live in him. Continue one new living translation says, continue to follow him. And uh, I don't know how you can follow. I don't know how you can follow and avoid this issue. And certainly what credibility would I have? Hey, I'm not going to deal with what is top of mind causing you most pain. I don't want to deal with that. I'll deal with uh, surface issues. That's not love. And I would say it's sin in the sense of missing the mark not loving as Jesus loved. The new commandment, that's the greatest commandment. Love as I've loved. And Jesus did not compartmentalize his love for people. And he didn't super spiritualize it. He didn't say, I'm just interested in your spiritual nature because everything's spiritual. I'm interested, paralytic, and forgiving your sins, but I'm also interested in helping you walk. So um, one other quote I want to read <laughs> It's really good. It's by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, former L.A. Laker, NBA great. And he wrote an op-ed in the L.A. Times. And he made this statement that I think probably best characterizes the issue of racism in the United States. And uh, it says this. It says, racism in America is like dust in the air. It seems invisible, even if you're choking on it, until you let the sun in writes Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, as long as we keep shining that light, we have a chance at cleaning it wherever it lands. That is such a remarkable quote to me because here's this guy, six-time MVP, uh, NBA final, UCLA grad, brilliant guy. And he says that it's like dust in the air where if we're looking right now, I don't see dust. But if I were to get in some refracted light or sunlight or bright light, you could see it, you know, like when, you, when you're out uh, and you see it through the prism of light. It's not necessarily in our face, but that doesn't mean it's not there. So what we've got to do is shine a more intense light on it. And I think that's the call of the church. This is not social justice. This is justice. justice. There's a mechanism in Western Christianity that has been if not more destructive, as destructive as, as pure Christianity tries to be helpful. There's a mechanism, and our fellowship, I keep saying, I, I love our fellowship, but to say otherwise would be like the, the Johnsons, not, not the four that live in this house, but my grandpa, those, there were some wicked people in there, but it's my family, and they did some good things that helped me, but I mean, and in our fellowship, it's, it's a family. But there's, there's mechanisms in Western Christianity that shut these conversations down. And we are affected by it, and we affect that. We, and a lot of us are, are also thinking the same thing. We don't want to just talk. We want to change stuff. We've spent our lives trying to reconcile men to God. That is the ultimate answer. But physical safety and honor of humanity are equally worth investing in jesus did both is what i'm trying to say and i and i think we gotta let this apolitical we're not talking about we're talking about like i've said it's not it's not primarily red or blue political apolitical it's primarily what is right versus what is wrong and we get used to tolerating certain wrongs because of the goodwill that 
we experience or do in other areas. We haven't wanted to face ourselves in the church. Also, conflation, I'll, I'll say something about that. So uh, you, you guys know, probably you've heard about Colin Kaepernick, all-pro San Francisco 49er quarterback who began kneeling, sitting, and then kneeling during the national anthem in NFL games, uh, hasn't played for four years, was white-balled out of the NFL. And he always said that this is about me protesting police brutality against unarmed Black men and women. That's what it's about. It was conflated and co-opted and made to be, no, you're disrespecting the flag and the military. And he's like, no, I'm not disrespecting the flag and the military. I am protesting the fact that white cops kill black men that are unarmed with impunity. But because of that ability to cognitively disassociate, that ability to manipulate gaslight or manipulate what someone says to what I want to make them say so that I can justify me not listening to them. That is what we can do. That is why someone can see, man, I don't want to say black lives matter. I want to say all lives matter. And we all know both are true. It's a shame in 2020 that we had to utter the words black lives matter, like the sky is blue or water's wet. But when someone says, no, all lives matter, what they're doing is ignoring, is ignoring the fact that all lives aren't being, there aren't, every race is not experiencing George, George Floyd's and Breonna Taylor's and Ahmaud Arbery's and Trayvon Martin's. So I'm just saying, so now the NFL comes out and apologizes, Roger Goodell, the commissioner to, to the players, doesn't apologize to Colin Kaepernick by name, which he needs to, they need to. And some teams are talking about being interested in, and him possibly playing again. And so the winds, this event, the winds have changed. Now they're going to be more people kneeling. But I'm just saying, we do that in the church. We say, you're kneeling because of police brutality, but no, you're disrespecting the flag. So in the church, you're wanting to make this political cause about, you know, black people and them advocating for police reform to stand up for them. Rather than preaching Jesus was colorblind, he loved all people. You're wanting to get us off of that. I'm not wanting you to get you off of that. I'm wanting you to lean into that and also look at your own heart. Is it possible that you are racially indifferent? Why? Because you have lived in a society that has advantaged you for 400 years. And no, this is not white guilt. This is not I'm trying to put someone on a guilt trip. It's a just fact of life. It's a fact. So who wants to look back, even this, this debate about Confederate statues, right, that were erected in the 60s and 70s as a response to the civil rights movement. We don't want to look back on our heritage and say it was evil. We were barbaric. We were sadistic. We tortured and killed and enslaved 400 million, you know, stolen land, stolen labor from Africa, stolen land from the indigenous people here. The fact of the matter is that is what the United States was built on. It is. And it was by European Americans. Those are facts. As well as noble ideals and noble things. They're both true. But it's like we don't want to admit that in the church. And we don't want to admit, yeah, I have been racially insensitive. I have thought, hey, well, that's your problem. Deal with it. I have my own problems. I'll deal with them. 
one of the things this has taught me, and we've talked about it, Steve, you know, our, our, we've got these teachers in the ICTLC that are, have written this paper on the role of women in, in the church, you know, and, you know, it's 105 pages, incredible scholarship, but no hard and fast conclusions, <laughs> which shows that you can interpret it any way you can do whatever you want and justify it finding a scripture. We all can. The point is that we have blind spots. And there are things that we are so off on theologically. Point is that I think God's teaching us through all this. We are saved by the grace of God alone. We're not saved by our doctrinal rightness, by our orthopraxy. And, and we, we're the ones that get it right, interpret the Bible right, do it right. We're saved by the grace of God, pure and simple. And that attitude of confident humility, confident in our salvation because of what Jesus did, but humble in that we look at the scriptures through our own hermeneutic, through our own biases, through our own lenses, which is why you can have a church that reads the Bible, members read the Bible every day and pray every day and have sermons for 40 years and still have vestiges of racism and insensitivity. That's why, because we, we all have biases. So I've been not just apolitical, I've openly said I'm not a patriot. Uh, by becoming a disciple, I wanted to be a citizen of the kingdom, not of this world. And I've, you know the place. You've been the same place as I've been. We've been to countries yeah. where they don't care what. <laughs> I mean, you have to do whatever they say. I've never, since I was 14 years old, had a hope or a dream for this country that it could be in spite of the sin, the races, all the, the stuff. It could be that God wove something into the way this country was formed that a, a disciple can be completely legal and defy, defy the systemic problems we've got that are going on. And, uh, and I think this is one of the biggest challenges for our fellowship is it's a bigger challenge for me, who was a neoliberal guy his whole life, to figure out how can the church do the right thing right now? Because yeah. it's not right. It needs to be uncomfortable. We've got a model that we've got to go to a place where I feel uncomfortable and not stop short of giving lip service and go there where I could say, you know, someone could say, hey, I think you're an angry black person that are you're making excuses for where you are in life and you've not, you know, uh, taken personal responsibility. Or I think you're racist. You're a nice racist, but you have accepted the disparity as just it's because of something you've done. Like you, you're where you are in life because of your superior intellect or your superior work ethic or whatever. And somebody else is, is not. So it, I feel like we, we have a chance. <clears throat> we really do have a chance to go further, more into the image of Jesus. And of course, we'll never get there. But this is, I mean, it's such a golden opportunity. God, help us if we, if we retreat and miss it. The church has missed opportunities before in the past. So I'm hoping we don't, we don't miss it. For those of us our age, or we can do whatever we want to do, but our kids are like, you guys can do whatever you want to do. That's right. But we are not going to abide this. And I'm talking about our kids in the church and the millennial and Gen Z generation. They're like, we're not doing this. So if we want to lead them spiritually, 
let alone be who we need to be spiritually. We need to lean into this rather than turn away, though that may be our instinct of what we've done in the past. Kevin, thank you for this challenge. And I think that we can't abide it either. Yeah. I think that that's where we've got to come to. You know, back a few years ago, we realized someone challenged me about being apolitical about five years ago, I think, a young woman. And she said, well, that is your privilege talking. And I thought, okay, explain. And I realized, and she said, you have the privilege to choose to be apolitical or not. My family's survival is based on these, these things being passed, bills being passed and this being done. So I had to take a step back and examine honestly my whole worldview. And I had to ask if Jesus was gonna be Lord of my worldview. And I started asking around some of the things, I asked um, black brothers and sisters, what news channel do you watch? Uh, what books do you read? What do you, what do you think about this or about that? And getting, trying to see the world through someone else's eyes than mine. And, and my privilege. Mm -hmm. So I think that, and it's been a, a process and I'm still making so many mistakes during even these last three weeks, I have learned so much that I needed to know. And I think that the, the only chance we've got as a church is to be humble and to listen and go forward and let Jesus be Lord of our worldview. We've got to rethink things through Jesus' eyes and how he wanted us to see the world. Yeah. And so I'm just grateful for the challenge and the honest talk. We needed it very badly. And I do believe that Portland is poised and ready to be different, to try, to try hard. I hear so much positive from the church about let's do this. Let's not miss this opportunity. Yeah. So just, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lisa. You're listening to audio from the Portland Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to our ministry, please visit www.portlandchurch.org.